0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of mental health conditions, suicide, torture and murder that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Doctors have a difficult role to play in the business of medicine. Charged with ensuring a patient's well-being, They must prescribe treatment carefully, considering the patient's conditions and medical history. The problem is, those treatments don't always work. In fact, as the rapid-fire litany of side effects at the end of drug commercials remind us, medications aren't free from risk. When those potential side effects manifest, a patient has few pathways for recourse. Hans Peterson knew this all too well. He couldn't single-handedly bring down Big Pharma. He couldn't take out the FDA. So he turned to the next best scapegoat, the dermatologist who prescribed his medication. Unfortunately, Peterson's perception of justice looked far different from a lawsuit. It involved a road trip to Chicago, a knife, and a blowtorch. This is Medical Murder's Killer Patients, a Spotify original from Parcast. Most doctors uphold the Hippocratic Oath, swearing they will do no harm. However, there is no such oath for their patients. And while healthcare professionals are usually the criminals on this show, sometimes it's the patients who abuse their power. I'm Alistair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm excited to assist Alistair with some medical insight into our case of Hans Peterson victimized by bad skin and bad medication, this story serves as a good lesson for all patients
0: and their doctors. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is the final story in our four-episode special Killer Patients. So far, We've examined three different crimes and the many reasons killers might target medical professionals. While our previous killers entered doctors' offices with a gun, the violence in today's episode is horrifyingly personal. We're wrapping up our series with the case of Hans Peterson, whose alleged break with reality led him to murder his dermatologist, Dr. David Cornbleet, in 2006. We'll explore Peterson's early mental health conditions, his rage against Accutane, and finally, his continent-spanning efforts to evade prosecution.
2: All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be with a personalized plan and expert coaching anytime fitness can help make the gym less frightening get more for your gym membership than machines get personalized support anytime anywhere visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today terms conditions and restrictions apply see website for details
0: hans peterson's early life was characterized by two defining factors the first that he was the son of a successful doctor, Tom Peterson. The second, that Hans was painfully shy. Born in Oregon in 1978, Hans was affectionately named after his Swedish great-grandfather who'd come to the US and established a respectable living for himself. But Hans didn't exactly follow in the gregarious footsteps of his namesake. Instead, Young Hans exhibited antisocial tendencies. According to his dad, Dr. Peterson, the problem wasn't that Hans was unlikable or even dull. He simply struggled in dialogue with others. His younger sister, who chooses to remain anonymous, shared a similar shyness. Perhaps to aid with the children's social development, the Petersons put Hans in football and his sister in ballet and gymnastics. For Hans, the sport soon became a source of joy. His social skills, on the other hand, saw little improvement. A family friend explained that he was never a big conversationalist. However, Hans's persistent shyness well on into high school may suggest that there was something more to the issue.
1: It's notable that he hadn't grown out of this persistent shyness. Although most people can and do feel shy at times, some are really crippled by it to the point that it affects their quality of life. People with social phobia or social anxiety disorder experience extreme self-consciousness and discomfort during everyday social interactions. They may only feel this way during specific types of social situations, but the condition can also be much broader where someone's affected literally anytime they're around people. This kind of anxiety isn't just extremely mentally taxing. It can also lead to physical symptoms like sweating, heart palpitations, dry mouth, and dizziness. Although Haas was going through high school, which is an awkward social and physical moment for many people, he had a long history of consistent withdrawal. This is what leads me to believe that he was dealing with more than just ordinary teenage angst.
0: He confided in his father that he just couldn't seem to light people up or get girls to want to go out with him. Unable to connect with people his own age, Hans fell into a depression. So Dr. Tom Peterson did what any concerned parent might. He took his son to see a therapist. In 1994, when Hans was 16, he was prescribed Zoloft for the first time. This wasn't completely unsurprising for Tom. He knew depression ran in their family. He just hoped the medication would help Hans. Zoloft is a very common antidepressant and more than 100
1: million people in the United States have been treated with it since its release in 1991. As far as antidepressants go, Soloft is part of the SSRI family, which stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. Depressed and anxious people often have neurochemical systems that metabolize serotonin too quickly, leaving their neural networks depleted of this feel-good, calming transmitter. SSRIs basically block the absorption of serotonin, which allows more of it to remain in someone's brain, which can ultimately elevate and stabilize their mood and anxiety. Today, Zoloft is regarded as an antidepressant that happens to target suicidal ideation very effectively and shows clinical benefit relatively soon when compared to other serotonin medications. In the best case scenario, Zoloft can transform a person's outlook on life and help them become a more functional, happier version of themselves.
0: But the road ahead was no walk in the park for 16-year-old Hans. Shortly after he started taking Zoloft, his parents divorced. It's unclear how Hans felt about this. He remained on speaking terms with both his mum and dad. Still, his mental health was up and down over the next couple years. In 1996, Hans graduated, heading straight to Southern Oregon University. With high school behind him, one might expect that Hans saw an opportunity to start fresh and reinvent himself as a more socially capable young man. But that new beginning wasn't to be. He transferred to Oregon State University after just one quarter. There, he secured a spot in the Theta Chi fraternity, which marked a big moment for the formerly isolated Hans. He'd finally found a place to belong. Unfortunately, the academic offerings of OSU weren't ideal. So, after a summer at home, Hans once again transferred. This time, he headed to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where his dad had gone, hoping the school's courses would push him more. And it seemed to do the trick. Hans settled on philosophy and economics as his majors. He also partook in Greek life again. On paper, it seemed Hans was growing out of his rough adolescent battles with loneliness, taking initiative to belong. But his father recalled that whenever his son came home to Oregon, he'd sleep until midday, rarely eat, and appear generally pessimistic about life. His GPA sometimes reflected his overall lack of motivation. Nevertheless, by spring 2000, Hans completed his undergraduate studies. The success of the moment undoubtedly pleased Hans, but the stress of getting there seemed to trigger a particularly rough bout of acne. In his graduation photo, Hans had red pimples all around his chin. It's unclear how long he'd been struggling with skin issues, but any over-the-counter products he may have purchased were doing little to resolve them. Hans may have even begun to wonder whether this was why he'd never had a romantic relationship, because despite his skin, Hans felt he was of above-average physical attractiveness. In his mind, women should have been drawn to him. But even by the end of college, he'd never had a serious girlfriend Still Hans quietly set the frustrations of his personal life aside as he sought out work By 2001 23-year-old Hans had moved to Philadelphia where he got a job as a clerk to a stock options trader Unfortunately it wouldn't last In September of that year a major event shook the world 9-11. Stock options trading took a severe blow. Jobs ran thin, and Hans was laid off. Unemployed, Hans moved to Chicago, where he landed a new stock trading role at the start of 2002. It was great news, but Hans was once again experiencing acne flare-ups. He may have found the condition particularly annoying, as he was no doubt trying to form relationships in his new city. So, in 2002, while living in Chicago, 24-year-old Hans set up an appointment with a dermatologist. His name was Dr. David Cornbleet. A family man and father of two adult children, Dr. David Cornbleet gave off a friendly familiarity that let people know they were safe in his hands. His practice which he'd inherited from his father, stood on the twelfth floor of a high rise on Michigan Avenue, a rather prominent street in Chicago. But his clientele came from all around the tri state area. Now this wasn't the sort of glamorous place one went to for state of the art laser treatments or other forms of trending dermal care. It was more of a go to for routine checkups and acne management prescriptions. Dr. Cornbleet didn't even keep a computer. Mind you, this was the early 2000s, so it wasn't totally arcane that he hadn't gone digital. Patient records were kept in physical form and carefully stowed in file cabinets. But the rest of the modest clinic could use a facelift, so to speak. The floors of the waiting room were covered in a faded burgundy carpet. The walls were white with little decor and there were three small consultation rooms. But for all of what Dr. Cornbleed's office lacked in modern style, it fully delivered in customer service. Dr. Cornbleed took great care to get to know each of his patients, going so far as to remember personal details about their lives. Over the course of three decades, he'd tended to entire families who had come to trust the now grey-haired doctor. So... On the fateful April day when Hans Petersen walked into his office as a first-time patient, it's fair to presume that Dr. Cornbleet was diligent and friendly, as he'd always been. Through wire-rimmed glasses, the doctor examined Hans's skin and soon delivered a consensus. Hans required prescription acne medication. Though, according to Hans, Dr. Kornbleet did little more than peer at his face before prescribing Accutane.
1: Isotretinoin, or the generic and difficult to pronounce version of Accutane, was originally tried as an anti-cancer chemotherapy medication. Today, Accutane as a brand has been discontinued due to lawsuits, but isotretinoin is still used to treat severe cystic acne. This is a painful and disfiguring type of acne where people develop pus-filled cysts or pimples deep under their skin. Isotretinoin works by drying out sebaceous glands directly underneath the skin, which are the glands at the base of our hair follicles that secrete acne-causing oils. After starting a course of treatment, the medication usually takes a couple weeks or more to start working because it takes a while to dry out these overactive glands. Hans was likely prescribed something that would have put an end to his skin troubles, but it's important to think about the strength of a medication like this.
0: That strong prescription was something Hans didn't account for, which everyone around him would soon come to regret. Up next, Hans takes a pill that seems to change his life forever.
3: I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.
2: Now, back to the story.
0: In April 2002, 24-year-old Hans Petersen finally sought an opinion on the acne flare-ups that had been plaguing him for years. Afterwards, he walked out of Dr. David Cornbleet's dermatologist office on Michigan Avenue with a prescription for Accutane. According to Hans, he was told to take two 40 milligram capsules daily. This wasn't an uncommon dose for adult men of his stature. But what was uncommon was the claim later made by Hans's father, Tom Peterson, that Dr. David Cornbleet hadn't put Hans through a necessary screening process. Such a process, which would look for potential risks present in the patient's medical history, was highly recommended at the time and is now legally required through an FDA-approved program for any isotretinoin prescription. Some
1: drugs with more invasive side effects can pose a risk to vulnerable parties, like women in their childbearing years and people with mental health issues. The prerequisite screening for prescribing Accutane, or now only the generic form, isotretinoin, requires two negative pregnancy tests taken one month apart and two blood tests that serve as a baseline for monitoring possible side effects. Before prescribing this drug, it's important to check a patient's metabolic health. This includes an evaluation of their liver and kidney functions, and it's also essential to check a lipid panel. The reasoning here is that Accutane can cause elevated liver enzymes or higher cholesterol and triglyceride levels, all of which negatively impact someone's overall health. I'll typically also order a CBC or a complete blood count as a marker for someone's general health status anytime I'm initiating a new medication. These aforementioned tests need to be regularly repeated to monitor the safety of a patient on Accutane. Before prescribing drugs with potentially harmful side effects, doctors need to explain all the risks in order for their patients to comfortably consent to starting them. Accutane, for example, can cause sterility in some women, so this is something you'd obviously want to discuss prior to prescribing it. To sum it all up, many drugs are associated with risk, so it's important that doctors adequately screen their patients before deciding upon treatment.
0: Even if someone passes this process, a screening offers an understanding that the drug being prescribed is not for everyone. Hans claimed that Dr. Kornbleet never mentioned this, nor did he ask Hans any questions related to his psychiatric history or other prior health conditions in the office that day, as Hans later recalled. It's important to bear in mind that we only have Hans's account here. Though, it could be considered somewhat irregular that Dr. Kornbleet didn't attempt to heal Hans's skin with less invasive conventional therapies prior to prescribing him Accutane. In testimony made before the US House of Representatives Committee on Government Reform in December 2000, it was noted that Accutane should be considered a last resort treatment. Hans headed to the pharmacy to fill his prescription and square away his acne problem. This was yet another checkpoint where Hans could have been informed of the risks of Accutane and apparently wasn't. Based on Hans's claim that he only learned about Accutane's possible side effects after he had taken the medication, it seems the pharmacy failed to educate him about its potential risks. However, It's possible that Hans was supplied with the FDA's required medication guide and he simply didn't read it. If he was given the guide and actually read it, he would have seen the words depression, psychosis and suicide bolded, confirming Accutane's high risk for those who struggle with their mental health. This may be due to the fact that in rare cases, Accutane has been associated with both increased pressure in the head and swelling in the brain. Although the research is
1: controversial, Accutane has been associated with decreased brain functioning. After comparing the brains of patients on isotretinoin versus those on antibiotic treatments for acne, the isotretinoin group showed decreased brain metabolism in the frontal cortex, limbic system, and other sensory structures. These areas of the brain are connected to memory and emotion, which are significantly associated with depression. Any inflammatory changes or abnormal function in these brain areas could be expressed as mood issues, difficulty with impulse control, and anxiety disorders. While the causative link between these clinical problems and the drug still remains hazy, it highlights the importance of monitoring patients emotionally while taking isotretinoin. For someone with a history of depression and social isolation, there definitely need to
0: be some careful consideration. For someone like Hans, who'd already endured his fair share of depression, Accutane likely wasn't the ideal treatment option. Nevertheless, Hans returned home that day and took his first dose, thinking that the drug was perfectly harmless. The next day, he took his medication again. Shortly after, he called his father, telling him he'd gotten a bad headache. That's when Hans decided to research whether this was a known side effect of Accutane. What he found surprised him. Pressure in the head, prolonged sadness and hearing and seeing problems were only a few of the severe symptoms associated with the drug his thoughts spun a complex web of worry and anger. As his recollection of those days suggests, no one had warned him that his brain functioning could be compromised, potentially long-term. Terrified by the prospect, Hans immediately stopped taking Acutane. He thought he was in the clear since he'd only ingested a small amount. But five days later, Hans confronted an alarming realization the headache wasn't going away. The discomfort grew so unbearable that Hans found himself unable to sleep. To make matters worse, Hans's ears began to ring and ring and ring.
1: In very rare instances, some people who've taken Accutane have reported a ringing in their ears, which is known as tinnitus in the medical world. Clinically, it's defined as a perceived noise within the head or ear that lasts longer than five minutes and reoccurs more than once per week. It can be a horrible disorder and can lead to life-disturbing issues like sleep disturbances, communication difficulties, and attentional problems. It can also be a huge source of anxiety, cause extreme frustration, and in rare cases can lead to severe depression, sometimes associated with suicidal ideation. Although the link between Acutane and tinnitus needs further exploration, one theory is that the drug may create changes in nerve conduction, specifically a conduction deficit in auditory nerve fibers. It's not entirely unbelievable that Hans was experiencing this, and if he truly
0: was, it would have stressed him terribly. Indeed it did. During that first week, Hans would roll out of bed every morning after yet another sleepless night, unable to hear himself think. He claimed he lost his appetite and that his hair started falling out. But that wasn't even the worst of it. A full week after the two days he'd taken the medication, Hans noticed something odd when he masturbated. The pleasurable sensation was gone. His suspected culprit? Accutane. So, once again, Hans turned to his computer. That's when he saw it. Horror of horrors. A flurry of comments from Accutane patients all across the world reporting one major side effect: impotence. Caught in a downward spiral, Hans's quality of life continued to decline as one week off Accutane turned into one month, with all symptoms persisting. Keep in mind, Hans said he had only adjusted 160 milligrams total of the drug. Typically side effects of substances stopped within a few weeks of halting use. Unfortunately for Hans, this wasn't the case. According to his own account, he had now coped with 30 consecutive days of headaches, ear ringing, and challenges with both sleep and sex. It was a long time to be in such misery and there was no end in sight. Eventually, Hans called his father again desperate for help. In the medical realm, there wasn't much Dr. Tom could say, except that he didn't think Hans should have been put on Accutane for his mild acne in the first place. It was too late for that. So Tom advised his son to put his belongings in storage and return home to Oregon as he sorted through his health issues. One can only presume Hans left his job as well. Because the next day, Hans boarded a plane headed west. Hans remained irritable. Tom offered food. Hans wouldn't eat it. Tom tried to put on music. Hans told him to turn it off. It hurt his head. Tom suggested they spend time together, but Hans rarely left his room. He'd done so much to overcome his mental health issues and succeed as an adult. Now, just two days' worth of Accutane had seemingly left him permanently ill. Desperate, Hans turned to an online page called the Accutane Roaccutane Action Group Forum. He posted his first entry to the site on June 16, 2002, under the username Hans P. and continued posting about his disastrous Accutane experience on a regular basis. Meanwhile, in the real world, his father brought him to a number of specialists, including psychiatrists and psychologists. Tom later said one psychiatrist diagnosed his son as psychotic and prescribed Zoloft. It's unclear whether Hans ever filled that prescription. He sought to alleviate his anguish with a different type of cure – justice. As a man with an economics degree, Hans could do little to take down the maker of Accutane or the FDA in court. So, without any preparation, Hans took the LSAT, passed, and applied to law school. By January 2003, about half a year after his fateful appointment, 24-year-old Hans had moved to New York City where he attended Yeshiva University's Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. He may have thought he was one step closer to punishing the pharmaceutical industry for his persisting neurological issues. If Hans did go
1: to law school to try to bring down the pharmaceutical house that created Accutane, it probably would have been a whole lot of work for an unsatisfying result. This is because drug companies are so wealthy and have such incredibly strong legal teams. Since a patient consents to taking a drug, they'll usually have little luck with claims against its manufacturer in court. Many times the real fault will be at the hands of a doctor, the one who ideally should have foreseen any potential problems with the medication, given a patient's unique history and mind-body profile. If a patient did in fact have adequate legal grounds, they could seek recourse against a drug company by hiring a lawyer specializing in product liability. I certainly wouldn't recommend they become one themselves just for this purpose. There are also communities of people who are able to unite over similar issues, and sometimes this really helps in creating awareness, change, and justice. Hans was ambitious to take on a law degree, but it probably would have been more useful to align himself with one of these patient
0: lobbying groups. Unfortunately, Hans had underestimated the intensity of his anger. It was a growing weight that teetered into territory of violent ideation. And soon, it would manifest into something far darker. While his classmates diligently tended to their projects, Hans was often checking the Accutane forum. Each comment further fed his resentment against the FDA and Accutane's manufacturer. But more than these big wigs, Hans began to zero in on a singular scapegoat, his dermatologist. He wrote in one post that Dr. Cornbleet was an unethical old man who'd used him to turn a profit. He even roped his roommates into conversations where he spoke of harming the doctor. It was an extreme sentiment, but then, Hans had always been a little weird. There was no telling just how serious he was about acting on his apparent anguish. That was, until Hans placed a call to his father in spring 2005, just months before he was supposed to graduate from law school. He told his dad that he'd stopped attending classes four months prior and had begun gambling online. Though Hans likely blamed his failure on his Accutane-riddled past, he offered little else. In fact, from the looks of it, Hans fell pretty silent for the next year. It would seem that most of his social interaction happened digitally in the Accutane forum. He may very well have spent this time quietly planning. Because on October 19th, 2006, Hans rented a car and hit the road. He was headed to the one place he could exact his idea of justice upon the unsuspecting dermatologist. Chicago. Up next, Hans gives justice a new definition. Now, back to the story. 28-year-old Hans Petersen had spent four long years nursing rage against Dr. David Cornbleet, a dermatologist he'd seen once. At this point, he had much in common with the earlier subjects in this series. Like Stanwood Elkus, he blamed his doctor for his sexual dysfunction. Like Chester Posby, he believed he was a victim of extortion and conspiracy. And like Stephen Passeri, possible medical side effects had set him on a vengeful and misguided quest for justice. And in October 2006, Hans Peterson was ready to act. So he rented a car and drove it to Chicago. Sometime in the days that followed, Hans called Dr. David Cornbleet and scheduled an appointment under a fake name. He was to be the doctor's last patient of the day on October 24, 2006. And that he was. Shortly after 4.30 p.m., 28-year-old Hans Petersen arrived at the Michigan Avenue office building he'd visited just once before in April 2002. Perhaps a rush of adrenaline filled him as he palmed the knife in his pocket. Then he grabbed a handkerchief to cover his fingers, pushed open the door, headed to the elevator and ascended to the 12th floor. Lucky for Hans, Dr. Kornbleet didn't have a video security camera in his office. While no one but Hans Peterson truly knows what happened that evening, we can make inferences based on crime scene evidence and Peterson's testimony. Around 4.45pm, when Hans entered the waiting room of the modest office, he wasn't greeted by any front desk worker. That evening, Dr. Kornbleet was completely alone when he greeted his assailant. It's unclear whether Hans began the visit still in character as a fake patient, but when he revealed his weapon, Dr. Kornbleet attempted to reason with him. But Hans wasn't after anything but revenge. In the blink of an eye, he lunged at Dr. Kornbleet. Hans, however, underestimated the strength of the 64-year-old dermatologist who threw a punch in self-defense. Hans was injured and started bleeding. As the two physically grappled, Hans cornered his victim into one of the exam rooms. He'd likely thought obsessively of this moment for years now, and he'd come prepared. Hans took out duct tape and rope he brought with him, tied Dr. Cornbleet's wrists and ankles together, then gagged him. This was nothing short of horrifying, but far worse was the madman's weapon Hans procured next. A blowtorch. With it, Hans intended to cauterize the wounds he inflicted upon the doctor.
1: It's definitely cruel and wildly unhinged that Hans intended to cauterize the wounds of his victim. Cauterization in medical terms is the act of burning off a part of someone's body or burning a part of the body to seal it off to prevent bleeding. By applying extreme heat to tissue, you can remove it or cause the blood vessels within it to clot, which will stop and prevent further blood loss. In relation to our story, Alistair, a wound can in fact be cauterized with fire alone. However, the imprecision of doing it this way would cause a great amount of skin burning, infection, pain, and a host of other problems. This isn't a DIY job, if you catch my drift. Although it's a routine procedure, it's not the first line of treatment when it comes to dealing with wounds, and it'd be beyond agonizing without anesthetic.
0: Since Hans thought that Dr. Cornbleach wouldn't immediately bleed out if the knife wounds were cauterized, he figured he could make his victim suffer longer. A dark fury overtook him as he recalled the years he'd suffered after taking Accutane. Hans took the knife to his victim over 20 times. Now, Hans did have the blowtorch, but it doesn't appear that he actually used it, possibly due to Dr. Cornbleet's efforts to fight back. Still, Hans took his time, staying in Dr. Kornbleet's office for about 40 minutes. Whether he spent the entire duration of that brutalizing his poor dermatologist is unknown. But around 5.30pm, Hans covered his own bloody face with a piece of fabric and fled the scene, heading back to New York. For the Cornbleet family, a terrible evening was only just beginning to unfold. The doctor's wife called up her adult daughter, worried that her husband hadn't called home as he typically did. So Dr. Cornbleet's daughter went to check on him. When she arrived at the 12th floor office, The waiting room was relatively undisturbed. Her eyes, however, soon fell to a daunting clue that no nightmare could have adequately prepared her for. On one of the exam room doors, a blood splatter. She walked toward it, then turned her head, trembling as horror materialized. There, on the floor, Her father, appearing to be dead, laid in a pool of blood. She froze for only the briefest of moments before picking up the nearest phone. In a daze, she called 911. By 8pm, the office swarmed with police investigators, shocked at the brutal, bloody crime scene. One fact was evident right away. None of Dr. Cornbleet's possessions had been swiped from the scene. Whoever had come to the office that night had a singular motive. To make Dr. Kornbleet suffer. Detectives had to have wondered who would have hated Dr. Cornbleet so deeply. DNA evidence found on an item at the scene gave them a potential lead. They sent samples out for testing, and while one was a positive match for Dr. Kornbleet, the other belonged to a different person. The mystery assailant. This would allow prosecutors to say with certainty whether a suspect was the killer. All they'd have to do was test the mystery DNA against another sample once they had someone in custody. That part, however, would prove difficult. The only other critical piece of information resided within the security footage captured by the building lobby's camera that evening. When police scanned the tapes, searching for a figure who came in sometime after 4 p.m., they immediately honed in on their suspect. A man in a ball cap had come into the building with a handkerchief on his hand and his head down. Those two details alone were suspicious. He'd clearly avoided getting his fingerprints on the door. But the footage from about one hour after his entry revealed something far more damning. As the visitor left the building about an hour later, he was disheveled and had bloodstains on his clothes. There was no doubt that was their guy. Unfortunately, finding him would be near impossible. The low resolution of the footage made it difficult for investigators to identify any distinguishing features. What they could surmise was that the attacker was a Caucasian man of medium build who was about 6 feet tall. They also presumed he was between 20 and 40 years old. It wasn't much. In hopes of yielding tips from the public, the detectives released the low-quality footage from the security camera to multiple news outlets. For three months, nothing. That's when Dr. Cornbleet's children decided to get creative. Shortly after their father's funeral, they considered that if his assailant was young, anyone with dirt on him would be too. And young people didn't watch the news. They used MySpace. So the Cornbleets made a page for their father, hoping someone who'd been friends with the attacker might stumble across it. Dr. Cornbleet's son also got images from the lobby footage enhanced and posted the pictures online. Four months later, in April 2007, a promising tip came in. A Marine, who was home on leave from Iraq, messaged the family, claiming he knew who killed Dr. Cornbleet. Over a phone call later that day, the Marine revealed that his friend's former roommate had held a deep resentment for a dermatologist he'd previously visited. The man in question? Hans Peterson. Upon checking Dr. Kornbleet’s patient records, authorities soon found that Hans had indeed visited the dermatologist five years earlier. Once investigators found the online Accutane forum where Hans had posted over 60 times in five years, the motive was abundantly clear. Hans claimed he had only taken two doses of Accutane in two days, yet blamed them for a myriad of psychiatric issues that may or may not have been related to the drug. His dermatologist had been scorched by the blaze of his wrath. When police infiltrated Hans Peterson's New York apartment, their suspect was nowhere to be found. From the looks of it, Hans had vacated months prior. Still, the detectives were able to obtain a cigarette butt Hans had left behind. It would offer the DNA they'd need to run to confirm that he was the killer.
1: DNA exists in nearly all human cells, and there are a bunch of common sources that are generally very easy for forensics teams to gather. These include things like blood, saliva, hair, and bodily tissue, along with a few others. It's hard to say how long DNA can last outside the body, given the myriad elements, different types of DNA, and the amount of it. In looking at our story, Han's cigarette butt could have provided enough saliva DNA to generate a complete genetic profile on him for up to six months. This, of course, would require the butt to be stored indoors with minimal exposure to elemental shifts. Relatively speaking, the police selected a good item
0: to test in Hans' cigarette. To the family's relief, it was a match for the unidentified DNA sample taken from the scene of the crime. This essentially confirmed that Hans Peterson killed Dr. David Cornbleet. Now, they could track their criminal down. There was just one problem. Hans hadn't been living in the States for quite some time. Back around the end of 2006, he'd fled to the Caribbean island St. Martin. Crucially, he chose the part of St. Martin under French jurisdiction. Since Hans's mum was French, Hans had been able to secure himself status as a French national. His move to St. Martin only further ensured that he'd be able to request a French trial. Under French law, Hans could be released in as little as 20 years as compared to life in prison with no parole in the States. So before the US officials could intervene with his scheme, Hans turned himself over to St. Martin officials confessing to the murder of David Cornbleet. He was taken into French custody. Though the Cook County state's attorney fought to get Hans extradited back to the U.S., the French authorities were unyielding. MySpace users who followed Dr. Cornbleet's case wrote letters to the French government demanding an American trial. They even yielded the attention and written call-outs from then-senators Durbin and Obama in 2007. But ultimately, all efforts reached a dead end. The French held their ground, pointing to a law that prohibited the extradition of French nationals. So Hans remained behind bars in the Caribbean while he waited for his trial, which would finally come in November 2011. During the week of Thanksgiving that November, the Cornbleets entered the French courtroom and faced the man who had killed their beloved David. They'd hoped for some words of regret to see a man who understood the extent of what he'd done. But Hans offered no apology. It was a stinging reminder of how senselessly their loved one had been taken from them. Ultimately, the court agreed with the Cornbleets, partially. They sentenced 33-year-old Hans to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 22 years. This means that he could be released in 2033 when he's 55 years old. It wasn't what the Cornbleets had hoped for, but for now they could rest knowing their father's killer would be locked away for at least a few decades. Hans Peterson's case is a unique one because it's
1: possible that medical negligence played a role in his declining mental health. Hans had a right to be angry that he wasn't given the appropriate screening for Accutane if that's indeed what happened. He also had a right to be upset with the pharmacy if, as you mentioned, Alistair, they didn't brief him on the drug's usage and side effects, bringing him up to speed. Despite Accutane being safe for the vast majority of people, Dr. Kornbleed should have recognized that Hans needed to be appropriately vetted as a candidate for the drug, especially since he was a new patient. It's possible he forgot, and it's possible he was being negligent. But I can't say for sure. Most doctors would never harm a patient on purpose, so when issues arise, they're often largely symptoms of systemic issues like rushed approvals for pharmaceuticals and medical devices.
0: Ultimately, doctors have tricky jobs, since the very lives of others rest delicately in their hands. In any other profession, mistakes and hiccups are a simple part of finding solutions. But in the medical world, the stakes are far higher, and the affected patients aren't always so
1: forgiving. The medical profession is already high-stakes enough, and stories like these four that we've covered make the job feel even more like a matter of life and death. This is unfortunately just part of the deal. I do understand how people can be quick to blame doctors for perceived injustices or personal health dilemmas, given that we're in a relative position of power. However, as we've seen, the reasons influencing someone's issues tend to be way more nuanced than a single bad practitioner. A doctor should never be punished merely because
0: of their position. Agreed. They were avoidable tragedies. And most tragic about these four murders, in which the patients reacted so violently, is that their personal vendettas weren't even founded in fact. Stanwood Elkus shot his urologist after his own choice to go against medical advice had disastrous results. Chester Leo Posby shot his ear, nose, and throat doctor after what he perceived to be a series of damaging treatments. Stephen Passeri didn't even shoot his own doctor. He killed his mother's and Hans Peterson brutalized his dermatologist out of anger over drug side effects that may not have been from the drug Dr. Cornbleed prescribed. Each killer held a warped sense of revenge and a twisted hero complex. Sure, the healthcare system may have added undue stress to their lives, but the individual practitioners who paid the price were simply providing the advice and care they'd been trained to administer. The prescription to treat these tragedies may be a little more compassion for the physicians who are, in the end, human. But don't worry, we're still holding the bad ones accountable. Join us next week as we return to our regularly scheduled programming fixing the spotlight back on deadly doctors and nefarious nurses. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Hans Peterson, among the many sources we used, we found the Chicago Magazine essay, Bloodlines, The Death of Chicago Dermatologist David Cornbleet by Brian Smith to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.